0: From beautiful downtown Sacramento, it's time for Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. Beach Blanket Fort. This is Stephen Spashney, and thank you for stopping by Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. I really appreciate you stopping by. It's a very special episode. I've been a Quincy fan for 40 years, and I finally got to sit down and chat with the band's very own bassist vocalist, Gerald Emmerich. So I really hope that you enjoy this as much as I do. Sit back, relax, and it's time to chill here on Beach Blanket Fort BINGO! In
1: 1980,
0: a New Jersey quintet by the name of Quincy released their debut album on Columbia Records. Rumored to be one of the biggest record deals for a new artist, Quincy was one of the most exciting live bands of the era, and their future looked bright. Comprised of bassist vocalist Gerald Emmerich, guitarist Steve Butler, vocalist Brian Butler, keyboardist Wally Metro-Smith, and drummer Bob Holden, Quincy had formed in the mid-70s, and after a personal tragedy, the band changed musical course and became one of the most talked-about bands on the East Coast. After aligning themselves with CBGB's and Hilly Crystal, Quincy found themselves in the middle of a major label bidding war. The self-titled album that emerged from this exciting time featured some of the era's most delectable tunes, mixing 60s influence with the punk and new wave energy. Unfortunately, their career path hit a few bumps along the way, including bad decisions by their record label and a career-halting lawsuit by jazz legend Quincy Jones, who decided to sue the band over the use of the name Quincy. Changing their name to Lulu Temple, the quintet forged on, releasing a musically diverse EP under their new name in 1983. Within a few years, the band decided to call it a day. The members went their separate ways, pursuing various other projects. The most high-profile project to emerge after the breakup was Stephen Bryan Butler's band Smash Palace. Gerald Emmerich pursued a very different path of which you will soon learn about. Most recently, the five original members of Quincy reunited and recorded 35 Years On, which features six brand new studio recordings and two live tracks recorded during their heyday 40 years ago. Initially released as a digital download, 35 Years On is now available on CD thanks to Cool Cat Music. I was able to chat with Quincy's Gerald Emmerich about the band's career, from their 70s formation to their most recent release. Filled with many highs and lows, this interview is especially revealing even for a hardcore fan like me. Forty years after I first started putting Quincy songs on every mixtape I made for Friends, it was an honor to hear the real story behind this album that entranced me as a teenager and continues to entrance me today. I hope that you enjoy the highlights from this conversation. Welcome to The Blanket Fort. Gerald Emmerich. Before we talk about Quincy, uh, let's go back to the beginning. Do you remember the exact moment when you decided that you wanted to be a musician?
1: I uh, had a kind of a serious thing happen. I lost a brother when I was about 12. And I had a brother that was a year older than me, and he was a guitar player. And uh, I was just really depressed. And I was also very critical of him. And I thought, oh, I I could never do anything. And there's so many great people out there. And he just, you know, he just kind of took me under his wing and he sh- started showing me some stuff and I, I had nothing on it, right? And then, uh, much to my surprise, um, I, I kind of took to it pretty easily. And then w- once when he and I were playing, we were kind of like playing together. making <laughs> music, so it was really fun, you know? So all of a sudden I had that communal experience of playing together and it... Uh, it was, uh, it was great. It was just intoxicating. So it really built from that very basic stage. And then the other thing that happened was I didn't really want to go full force into playing guitar because it seemed super complicated and hard. So I thought, well, maybe I can play bass because it's just the bottom four strings. And He's playing a chord and I'll play a note. He plays a C chord, and I'll play a C note. You know How, how hard can that be, right? So, uh, so I started doing that. And plus, the other thing was that I was a junior high at the time. Uh, everybody around was either playing guitar or drums, mostly guitar. So there was no bass player. So I thought, wow, I could be mediocre and get in any band I want. <laughs> that also uh, was a little bit of a motivation. And uh, you know, you know, I felt kind of sad uh, in, in my personal life because of the you know losing my brother. And so it really was a great escape. You know, it was exciting, and I became. A little bit more popular because I was able to do that, and uh, it was just fun. It just was something to look forward to, and and uh, it just kind of overcame me. You know, uh, over the years, I found that uh, even though I don't really actively pursue it, every time I I do sit down and do it or get together, it's just is, it's just a great experience. So I'm really thankful that I have that in my life. I'm gonna grow up. I'm
0: gonna get smart, I'm gonna do right, oh I'm gonna do right, I thought, I know,
1: I'm quite sure
0: How did you end up meeting Steve Butler and his brother, Brian Butler and the rest of the guys in the band? What
1: happened was my brother and I, we we moved from Cedar Rapids, Iowa to New Jersey. And uh, we were in school and they had a talent show. And by this point, uh, my brother and I were writing songs and thinking we were pretty hot stuff. So we went to this, um, the high school talent show and we, at the talent show, we met a couple of people that were doing the same thing, and Steve Butler was there, but he wasn't in the talent show. He didn't audition. He was um, in a band with his older brother, Brian, who had already left high school. He was out on his own. He was in art school or something. And so uh, he invited us to play in a coffee house, and he loved my brother and I thought we were writing great songs and he said he and his brother were writing songs so we instantly became friends and we, we played together at this coffee house and then we you know we we just had a great affinity and a great common interest in music as well as uh, songwriting and also Steve was extremely talented from a very young age and uh, we always kind of look up him as uh, somebody that was uh, more accomplished so that was great. He had a great year. I remember he used to sit down. You know, we put a record on that we really like. He'd pick up the guitar. And by the time the song was over, he knew how to play it. And we were just like, <laughs> we were amazed. We didn't think we could be in a band together, but we, uh, we stayed in communication. And then uh, after we had kind of tried to do stuff on our own, we realized that if we joined forces, we could give ourselves support and we could also not just support, moral support, but musical support and also helped contribute to filling it out. Uh, musically and harmony-wise, you know, we had an interest in harmony. So what happened was, it was funny because back then we were fans of this band called The Band. It was uh, Bob Dylan's backup band. And they had come out with this record called Music from Big Pink. And they all lived in this house in upstate New York And they had a recording set up in the basement and they write songs. And and the great thing about these guys was one guy would sing lead one time and then, you know, the piano player would sing lead and and they just rotated their their songwriting and lead singing. So we thought, well, we have a bunch of lead singers here, so uh, this could work out. It's, you know, it's been done and we could have our own identity. So that kind of thing. So we we were excited about it and we rented a, a dilapidated house in Collingswood. Jersey and uh, the thing was really unbelievable but it it was in a decent neighborhood but the house was you know falling down but perfect for us because you know we didn't need furniture we just needed some music gear and uh, we basically started from square one We, we weren't very good at playing out we just had a common interest of writing songs singing them arranging them and trying to record them and we started uh, at some point we, we knew we had to get out there and play so there was a couple of places around that that had some uh you know uh, they had bands that would sing harmony and so we started playing in like dinner places beefsteak charlie's and, you know all that kind of crap but when we were doing that we saw this one band at uh beefsteak charlie's and uh while he was in it and uh, we had been looking for somebody, and uh, we really liked Wally because he was just a fantastic musician and a, and a funny guy. And uh, Steve particularly really uh, hit it off with him musically, and he, uh, after some time, we were able to uh, talk him into joining forces, and he was great because not only was he a great musician, is a great musician, but he uh, was really interested in new Styles and new new music coming out of England.
0: Stop now. I don't want to see it after two hours. Oh, no, not two hours. Stop now. You're bringing it all apart, and I just can't take it. Oh, no, I can't take it. Stop now. Stop now.
1: Stop That's how we met Wally, and and, uh, we had another tragedy. Uh, we, did, we did a tour in the Midwest that was you know a disaster, but it was fun. And uh, we came back and we were doing a show on South Street in Philadelphia, and my brother unfortunately uh, was murdered at, this, at the show. And uh, it was an absolutely horrible thing that happened. And uh, it just devastated all of us, of course, me in particular. He was kind of a mentor for me and a brilliant songwriter. And so what happened was we didn't know what we were going to do. And then Steve and Brian really wanted to continue on. And uh, they kind of encouraged me to to get back on the horse, as it were. We reformed. And it was at that point we got Wally in the band. But we... We're hearing the rumblings of punk rock come out of England. You know, people were laughing at the Sex Pistols and, and make fun of them, and we and we laughed too. And then all of a sudden, it just hit me like, "Wow, these guys are onto something." You know, I like I like their anger, I like their humor, I like their wit, and I like the fact that it was very irreverent. And it was uh, something something that we very quickly paid attention to. And then we found that there was this incredibly great movement coming out of England, which was a kind of second British invasion, which you know, was very exciting for us because we were all, you know, extreme fans of the original British invasion. And uh, so this was really a great opportunity for us to kind of really reconnect with our roots in a way that kind of threw off the trappings of sophistication and trying to be something other than what we were which is guys trying to write songs like i said we were we were a little angry <laughs> I'll, I'll admit to that and uh, we, we brought it we, we brought it on stage and, and we brought a passion and excitement I can't live in a dream without you. Dream without you well, I can't the next key thing that happened for us was, uh, because we were playing our our own song, we, we were kind of relegated to playing smaller clubs that barely paid. We could have made a lot more money if we would have played in the union rooms, but uh, we didn't want to play Stairway to Heaven and Freebird, which not to take anything away from those great songs, but we didn't want to identify with that. And so we uh, so we were playing this kind of backwoods Pine Barrens and we played down the shore in the wintertime, <laughs> not the summertime, uh, you when know, nobody else wanted to play and you couldn't make that much money. So, but anyway, we, we we quickly realized that uh, if we were going to get on the big stage, which is what we wanted, we'd have to go to New York City. So I had read in the, uh, I think it was Rolling Stone or the New York Times, that uh, they were signing bands out of this place called CBGBs, and it was fairly new at the time. So I said, you know, we gotta we got to go, we're, they're signing bands. That's, that's the whole idea here. We saw this ad in the Village Voice that they were going to do a – Uh, An album of bands that play there, a compilation kind of thing, and we thought, oh, this would be great. At least we we get on vinyl, and that was our dream was to be on an album. So um, we were able to schedule an audition, and we went up there and we played. It's like a you know, it's like a ninety mile, hundred mile drive for us. And uh, we went up there, we set up, we played, and I thought we did a pretty decent job. And remember, even though. You know, it was a showcase. We were used to playing all the time, even though even though they were like crappy gigs. We, we were playing like three to five shows a night anywhere we could. So we were a pretty well-oiled machine, whereas other bands that would go in there and do showcases, it'd be, it was kind of a one-off. So we had an advantage. So we went up there, played, and then we didn't hear anything for, for weeks. And uh, we were all getting kind of antsy. We, you know, we at least wanted to be told to, you know, yeah, leave, leave them alone. <laughs> so, uh, in desperation, I decided to uh, go up to New York, take the bus up to New York City, you know, went up, got to uh, Port Authority, and walked down to the Bowery. And by this point, it's raining and it's dark. And I go in there and I said, hey, you know, I just came up from New Jersey and uh, we auditioned for this thing. I was just wondering, I haven't heard anybody, I haven't been able to get through. And the guy says to me, uh, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> he just kind of shrugged. Let's Can you, can you find out? He said, "No, no, sorry. That's just that's that's a game you got to play." And I, I couldn't believe he was telling me this. So I turned around, completely dejected, walked out of the place, out onto the street, in the rain. And I'm walking down the street, and I hear faintly in the background this voice calling out, "Hey, hey, you!" and it was the guy who i talked to he said what'd you say your name was and i said quincy and he stood there and then he waved me to come back so i thought what's this and he comes back and and uh, has me stand there And he said wait right here so he goes disappears and then he comes back and with him is this guy <laughs> Hilly crystal i don't know if you've heard of him he was the owner of he was the owner of CPGBs and played by Alan Rickman in the movie. But he was a character. So he comes out and he comes over and he spoke very slowly and methodically. And he says, are you, uh, are you with Quincy? And I said, yes. And there was a long silence. <laughs> and then he said, a lot of bands came in here. You guys were the best. And I couldn't believe I could believe what I was hearing. <laughs> it was like the heavens opened up, and the choir sang.
0: I don't
1: up there and he wanted to sign us for a management deal this was when things really got exciting because when he was managing us we would play there uh fairly frequently and because there was it was such a hot club and the record companies wanted to sign bands out of there because they didn't even they didn't know what was going on they're like well, we better sign these guys this is what's happening right from anybody that had a skinny tie he would get calls from record companies. say, well, you know, when could you come down? And you go, well, I could be there Wednesday night. And then he would call me and say, what could the band be here on Wednesday night? And we check our schedule and, and of course we'd make it work. And so we then became very well known in the record world and there became a bidding war for us. So it was very exciting. Uh, you know, Columbia chrysalis are there. And at, at one point we were playing and, uh, all these big wigs were in the audience, and it was a dumpy club. I mean, it was broken chairs, graffiti, it smelled like piss and beer, and you had these guys with suits there, like like Clive Davis was there, all these people, you know, and sitting there trying to act like uh, you know it's no big deal. You know, it went really well and, and uh, we ended up signing with Columbia Records. Supposedly, we signed the biggest record deal in history for a new band. But the problem with that was everybody we ever met was smelling money. It was a successful uh, plateau to get to. It was wrought with bad things going on. You're on the cover of the magazine, Paisley, wearing the latest Say that you're older and wiser. I don't really care if they argue or agree, always in the news. Just listen like you. And I'm tired of you, see my blobs in the rare head of views.
0: Always in the news. How did you come up with the name Quincy? Because oddly enough, back in high school, when I would put Quincy songs on uh, compilations. Nobody would associate it with Quincy Jones. They would associate it with Jack Klugman. Uh,
1: Where we came up with the name was I had been working at this uh, restaurant in in Philadelphia and I was working with this bartender who I had a deep crush on and her name was Quincy and she was a dancer and I kind of followed her around, and uh, I wrote a song about her and then I brought it into the band and the and steve and brian just said oh this is a great name we should name the band this and i was like oh no really <laughs> it just kind of i felt like i was airing my problems a little too much and so uh but they loved the idea they kind of talked me into it and then shortly after that or I, I don't we weren't really watching tv at the time but uh then it, the subject came up about the tv show with jack clugman we we were a little bit lost because we didn't know how that would, you know, resonate with uh, everybody because we weren't really watching the show or anything. But anyway, we kept it thinking, well, this is it. It was really hard to come up with a name. every name you could think of somebody came up with or sounded dumb or, you know, so... And then, you know, of course, when we started to become new wave, it, it was like, well, is this really sound new wave? And I was
0: like, ah, forget it. Just keep it. You recorded the debut album with uh, producer Tim Freese Green. Was he your choice or did the label suggest him? Because we had
1: had this great record deal that was unprecedented. They were like, well, who do you want to produce you? And we were like, uh, how about George Martin? How about, you know, and we, we had a dream list and they went through all of them and they said, oh, no, he's not available or no, this. At one point, supposedly, uh, Steve Butler had told me this. That Paul McCartney was interested in producing us. And uh, it was during a time when he was busted or something. I don't know, but he heard the songs and he really liked them. And uh, that was uh, something that really made me happy. But uh, we went through the list and then we had our initial, you know, like, there was a guy that was producing Blondie, we really loved him, there was a guy that was producing the Cars, you know, we thought he was terrific, and there were some guys that had produced uh, lesser known bands that we thought sounded great, and you know, one of our favorite bands at the time was XTC, Steve Lillywhite. Really and he had done U2, which, you know, those guys came out right around when we came out. Uh, but yeah, we wanted them, and we, you know, sometimes it was because they weren't interested, and sometimes it was because they weren't available. Uh, and what happened was after we got gone through every every name and every possibility, you know, they suggested a few people, and by that point we were just uh, really desperate to do the record. And the other thing about it was we felt like we weren't we were writing disposable music. We were trying to do high quality disposable music, and when we started negotiating our record deal it was all of these long negotiations that went on and on and on and you know from an artist standpoint we were very upset because we just wanted to record these songs and get on with the new songs and uh, by the time we actually did the record we had new songs to add to it but the point is is it it took a really long time
0: have fond memories of recording the album uh
1: (laughs) no well let me let me just say that the thing is it was great that we got to we felt like there was no no expense spared right and we were in this great studio in new york city and it was owned by cbs and i'm sure they were double dipping there but what was really cool was that pink floyd was in the next studio doing uh, the wall, I think, and uh, Al Demiola was there, and uh, and the studio that we recorded. There was a list of people that were recording. It was just mind-boggling—from Frank Sinatra to Barbara Streisand to Bob Dylan to all these great Miles Davis. The list was endless. We felt like we were in the game, you know. It was great. So yeah, in that regard, yes. But uh, uh, Tim Freeze was a uh, uh, a little bit phoning it in, so. You know, we were panicked about it, uh, and we we were concerned that it wasn't going to be as good as we hoped. You know, I think the songs hold up, but we felt like we had a great live band, and the band could play the songs live, and really, it was it was exciting. And when the record came out, it seemed a little flat to us. So... That was, you know, I I don't think we got the guitar sound that we really needed. We didn't have the punch of the drums like Steve Lillywhite White or one of those guys. And, you know, the the thing that was unique about our band was that usually you got signed by having a great song that they could market, like the Knack had My Sharona. They got signed based on that song. We got signed because of the live act. It we was really exciting live act. We knew what, what we were doing because we had done it a million times and were really comfortable on stage. You know, I particularly really wanted to have that dynamic feel on the record, and it, it felt a little, you know, like I said, a little flat, and, uh, you know, I'm proud of it, but I wish it could have been a little more like... Uh, you know, one of those other records you talked
0: about. Turn the Other Way Around was released as a single backed with Always in the News. Did the band have a hand in choosing the singles?
1: Um, I think it was pretty clear, you know, what we were going to do. I mean, we had, we had Turn the Other Way Around and Critics' Choice, and we knew that those were, like, going to be the songs that radio would play. We actually did a Yellow Vinyl release and as a promotion, but it was so funny because... Here we are with this big record company, and they they come out with this yellow vinyl thing, which is a promo, it's supposed to go to DJs all over the country, and it does, but they don't have the records in the record stores. It was a, it was a real debacle. The other thing, of course, was the Quincy Jones lawsuit.
0: I'm It seemed that Quincy dropped off the map after that. But surprisingly, the band reemerged in 1983 as Lulu Temple. The music was more diverse, a lot more experimental and funky. I'm assuming the lawsuit forced the name change. And was the music a natural progression? Uh, or was that more of a record label thing?
1: After the lawsuit, you know, we went from being the fair haired boys to what are we going to do with these guys? <laughs> <laughs> because part of the lawsuit was we couldn't keep our name and we couldn't talk about it to the press. So we felt like our hands were tied. You know, we, we basically, we thought, you got to be kidding me. We, we get to change our name. And the problem was when he sued us, we, we would have won if we would have gone to court with him, but we couldn't afford to go to court with him. So what happened was we, we were doing demos, writing songs, and the record company started to suggest songs that we cover. It's a quick way to get on the radio, and um, they sent us a couple songs that were terrible, and we had to change our name anyway. So why don't we just kind of follow our, you know, instincts and and uh, have some fun and try some different stuff? So we we actually wrote a bunch of things, and tension was a little bit, you know, we, we sort of felt like, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen, and we did this. Uh, video, and we was a photo shoot and out of that came this ep and yeah i mean it you know it, it was I, I personally feel like you got to keep it fresh somehow and, and if for no other reason just so you feel like you're, you're a little more excited about the material and the playing <laughs>
0: Eventually, the band called it quits. Stephen and Brian formed Smash Palace, which was probably the most high-profile project from the band members. But you followed a different path. C- can you fill us in on what you did? Well, I moved to New
1: York City, and uh, I started a couple of different bands there. And without much success, I, I had a, I wanted to move into a kind of performance art. And I had this band that played in the East Village a few times and Wigstock and a few events. And uh, we were trying to put uh, a version of pop music into a more theatrical sense, which I guess is carrying over from what I wanted to do with Quincy. And uh, and it was fun. You know, we, we didn't get much traction. We got a little bit of interest. Uh, it did okay. You know, had some fun. But uh, I eventually decided to leave New York and come out here to California in pursuing music theatrically. I kind of got an interest. I'd always had an interest in acting. So I, I wanted to try to explore that and see if I could uh, do anything with that. And so I studied in New York city and then I decided to come out to Los Angeles and uh, see if I could get some work. And I have worked in uh, major motion pictures, TV shows and commercials over the years um, and done okay. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a tough, tough racket, but uh, it's super fun when you work. I realize that as an actor, you're kind of like a session man in a band, you know, like uh, some artists that will go in and do songs and then they'll have, they'll pick somebody to be the drummer and pick somebody to be the bass player. Well, It's the same with a movie or a TV show or a commercial. They have this idea I've already re- and they want the guy that to play that thing, and they, they're looking for that kind of guy, and they hire that kind of guy. So, and really, you know, I like to write it, and I like to produce it, and I like to, you know, help create it in a very collaborative way. And I I realize that about, uh, you know, myself that it goes back to being in a band from when I was a kid. I love that. I love the collaboration and I love the fun of it in all of the collaborations I've been in. Usually when something is a good idea, it's pretty obvious, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, you know, it's very rarely is it, is it no, hey, this is the, this is the good idea. What we used to do with Quincy and still do when we get together is uh, you know, if somebody has, first of all, we try every idea, you know, if somebody has an idea, we try it. But in the end, you know, like I said, it's pretty obvious what works best. And then if it isn't on a rare, on a rare time when it isn't, then we, we give the uh, veto power to whoever wrote the song. So that's, that's been a great system.
0: Just for paintings or statues What inspired you to finally record some new music that was just released as uh, the album 35 Years On?
1: Um, I had, uh, we, you know, we may have different stories depending on who you ask, but I had run across this box of cassette tapes that I, I didn't know what they were. And I finally found something I could play the tape on. And I put the tape in and it was a rehearsal tape of Quincy. And I thought, wow, these guys are really good. <laughs> you know, I said I want to see these guys. You know, and I, I'm so self-critical that you know everything I've heard, I go, oh, this could be better there, that could be better there. But this was something I had no, I hadn't heard before, or at least in a million years. And so I I like, thought, oh, this is good. And we were talking about social issues. We were talking. We had a point of view about. What was happening politically media wise and as well as romantically and i thought you know that's it that's good maybe with the first record had we done it sooner than later we would have had a little more of that on there you know things might have worked out differently so i thought in its dna the band had that we had that point of view so in a conversation with steve Butler, i you know i told him about it I said, God, you know if we could just do that and then he kind of came up a well, what if we did something like that? Because Steve in Smash Palace is kind of, he doesn't really, even though he's very politically outspoken, I don't think he brings it to the musical part of it. And, and you know, my point of view is let's bring it. <laughs> let's, let's bring the whole thing. Who cares? Some people don't like it, some people won't. But uh, so it came out of that conversation. Why don't we do something that's got a point of view? Because we were all feeling. Like, God, this is a crazy time we live in and I just really can't believe that this is happening politically and socially and all this stuff. So I said, why don't we sing about it? <laughs> Let's do it. And it came out of that really
0: The new material is not a return to the old sound. It it represents where you all are at musically today. Uh, was that the initial intention when you decided to get together and record this?
1: Well, not really. Uh, the thing is, we did want it to be genuine. We wanted it to be authentically ourselves, but we. We built into the project that we would have a little bit of commentary in there. So you've got "Get Well Card" from the Devil. You've got "Words Are Words." You've got uh, "Liberty Bell." So it's kind of built in. There's a couple of uh, love songs in there, but uh, and then we put <laughs> we put in two live recordings of the band from 1978 at CBGB's, and one is called "Privileged Few," which could be called. The top two percent, or whatever, and then the other one was always in the news, which you know was a little bit of an indictment of the media. The great thing about getting together, I have to I have to say this, I and mean, all of these guys in the band have been playing in bands since then, nonstop. So you got the, the the shock for me when I got together with them was how great everybody was. Like everybody was better than they ever were. So it was really, it was such a great pleasure. And yes, you know, everybody's a little more mature uh, musically, but uh, we kind of understood the, you know, the roots. And when we recorded it, we did it old school. We went into the studio and played live the, you know, the rhythm tracks and we did the some vocal over dubs and the lead over dubs guitar. But that's kind of how you used to do it, and I don't think anybody—it's all cut and paste now.
0: Since you live in different areas, how easy was it to coordinate the sessions, and were you able to knock them out fairly quickly, or were these songs recorded over a prolonged amount of time?
1: Uh, we took some time to write, and then we also we had to line it up. I mean, there was some there was some scheduling issues, and there was a health issue at one point with uh, with uh, somebody. And uh, we just—it was hard to kind of line everything up because everybody's got work that they do and and uh, all that. So you know, like to get together with Wally is like impossible because he's playing in a million bands at once. And I think he's teaching too, and and then Steve plays in a couple different bands, and and, uh, and Bob plays in a couple different bands, and he's kind of on the other side of Philly, so it's like it's pretty pretty far away. Not to mention me on the other side of the country. But, you know, we worked it out. It took us, you know, probably know, a year and a half, two years to figure it out. I got a get-well card from the devil today Said he's
0: gonna let me pay It's bully for you You guys got together was the chemistry instantaneous or did it take a while for you guys to sort of get back to that groove uh, i gotta tell you
1: it was amazing it was really incredible we just plugged in and it was like no time had passed you know it was the same musical sense of humor It just all of a sudden you know like i typically uh, gravitate toward the drums and so that I can lock the bass in with the drums and Steve and Wally work out some things harmonically. And then Brian kinda, you know, he's got like a third eye, so to speak, and, and he'll like get ideas that are not connected to what you're actually playing that that, that really can have a nice overview. So we just immediately just, you know, locked into it. And we we didn't want to uh we didn't want to share the songs with Bob and Wally. We wanted to just come in fresh. It was just an approach we took. But the chemistry was there immediately, and it was really fun and, and good-natured and humorous and uh, a lot of vitality and just you know so much goodwill. And I, I'm not used to it, to tell you the truth. I mean, I, I live in a land of you know, everybody is out for a buck. and You have to understand that this project is it's just a labor of love. You know, it's just, there's no, we, we're not trying to conquer the world here. We got, we got a little something we can throw in the pot and you know, hopefully people can enjoy it. And uh, it was a blast. And uh, I think it turned out pretty good.
0: Well, have you been happy with the reaction to it so far?
1: Yeah, we've got, you know, we have some airplay in l and England and we've got some airplay in Spain and uh, a couple places around the country. So, uh, we we first released it on CD Baby, and then we released it with Cool Cat Music. Uh, but it was great, because some people were asking for CDs. I don't know anybody that has a player, but <laughs> it's kind of nice to have something, you know,
0: like a hard copy. It it too long to my wrongs. That was my big mistake. But the answer simply was written. Listeners find information and keep updated on all things Quincy, including buying the new release.
1: Well, there's a Facebook page called uh, Quincy, the Band, and uh, there's also Instagram. I've got a I've got a lot of historical pictures uh, dating back to the beginning of the band in the mid '70s. Uh, just kind of rounded up all the all the stuff I could and and put you know new and old stuff on there and so that's Quincy the band on Instagram and then Quincy the band on uh, Facebook and then to buy the CD I think you have to go to Cool Cat Music it's all K's cool with a K cat with a K and then music with a K and uh, and then you can buy them from there and. And, uh, CD Baby, I think you can download stuff. But uh, it's streaming everywhere. Don't knock on my door. Don't knock on my door.
0: That's it for this episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. I'd like to thank my special guest, Gerald Emmerich, for stopping by and talking about the history of Quincy. Remember that you can buy the new Quincy album 35 years on, on Cool Cat Music. And I'd like to thank you for hanging out and for listening. Remember to like, comment, share, and subscribe. Smell you later!